But we are going to read from God's Word. We're going to turn to 2 Timothy, chapter 2. In the Church Bibles, this is found on page 1195. That's 2 Timothy, chapter 2, reading from verse 1 through to verse 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Amen. Well, I can't repeat that. You just take my best sentence. (laughs) So I've got to think of something else to say at the beginning. Uh, Let me give you a quotation instead. See if you can guess who said this. If you want to change the world, start with a university. It was Martin Luther in 1523. I studied Reformation history uh, in Oxford. John Ferris at the back there was at the same time. He was a couple of years older than me. And uh, that's what I picked up this quotation from uh, Martin Luther. It was repeated by Charles Malik, a general secretary of the UN, in 1981 in his papers or lectures on Christ and the university, but the, the originator of the, of the quotation was Luther himself, which is interesting. I've been researching and writing a book in the last year on the legacy, missionary legacy of Luther and Calvin, and when Luther uh, was used by God to start the Reformation, which has so shaped uh, Europe since 1517, there were only about seven or eight universities in Germany. By the time he died, It was 40, and it was partly because of Luther's commitment to the university and his conviction that uh, in the open university context that the truth of the gospel would be demonstrated to be superior uh, if if there was freedom to proclaim it and explain it alongside other worldviews. And that was his notion of the university, that the gospel would be seen to be superior to alternative worldviews and would shape the whole of Europe. And there's an argument for saying that the Reformation, uh, which is the great shaper of modern Europe, uh, really started in the universities because Luther himself was a young postgraduate lecturer in the small market town of Wittenberg uh, when he was converted. Um, John Calvin didn't write much about himself, typical of Reformed people, but in his institutes, all of which I've read, there's one little phrase where he says he was converted in the University of, uh, of Orléans. Uh, south of uh, France when he was in his early 20s. And, of course, the Reformation influence spread through the universities of Europe. Calvin, interestingly, never brought uh, many peasants into his army of missionaries that he sent to to France, many, uh, so much so that by six years after Calvin's death in uh, 1570, uh, there were two million Protestants in France out of 20 million And uh, much of the pioneering work was done by students and young graduates, often from wealthier families. He targeted 
those kind of people. And of course, it came through the universities in England, through Oxford and Cambridge, uh, particularly, and the gospel spread uh, throughout uh, the UK as a consequence. So I haven't seen a book written on this, but there's an historical argument. Somebody should do a doctorate on it for the impact of the gospel through the universities spreading uh, across Europe. So some people might ask you, what's, what's the point of student ministry? And I would say there are three consequences, essentially, or three reasons why student ministry is important. One is because of the evangelistic opportunities it provides. All the research done all around the world in the global church has indicated in pretty well every country that more than 85% of the people who become believers in that country do so before the age of 25. That doesn't mean God's not interested in older folks, but that's pretty global. Uh, and it means that young people are making decisions about their worldviews, uh, their value system, which will shape their choices and decisions. And the vast majority of people don't shift their worldviews that much beyond the age of 25. So it's a critical opportunity to reach uh, that generation with uh, gospel ministry, which focuses on courage manifested in the lives of believing students, content of the gospel, substantial, Christ-centeredness, and contemporary engaging uh, connection with folks, a series of C's if you want some alliteration. Second reason student ministry is important is because of its impact on the church. And uh, Christoph hinted at this when he referred to the Lausanne Congress in 2010. I was seconded to IFES, from IFES for nine years as the international director of the Lausanne movement, while also working in, in Europe, developing a team of evangelists. And uh, it was interesting that um, when the first Lausanne Congress came about in 1974, inaugurated by Billy Graham, John Stott was the key architect of the text from that. So two of the great evangelical statesmen of the second half of the 20th century, Billy Graham had a lot of friends in many countries of the world he felt didn't know each other, so he, he gathered the conference in order that they could make, might meet each other, and they asked key, he asked key leaders around the world if they could select a group of the most significant leaders in the country to come together to this conference of two and a half thousand evangelical leaders. The interesting thing is that 70% of the people who gathered were graduates of student ministry. And somebody said to Billy Graham, why have you invited all these people who have a background in student ministry to a global leadership thing? They're dominating it. He said, I didn't choose them. I asked leaders in the countries of the world, in the churches, to choose them, and this is what they came up with. It just so happens that many of the key leaders emerging in the churches around the world happen, happen to have been shaped in the university, not uniquely by IFES, but also also by some other student ministries like Campus Crusade, Navigators, and so on. But they were shaped in their thinking. And in a sense, that's why we say to church leaders, uh, work alongside, please support student ministry, because for three or four years of investment, you get 50 years of payback. And Bobby Sung, the uh, doctor who's now in his 80s in Singapore, therefore, said, if you want to see how fruitful a student ministry is, watch what the graduates are doing 20 years after. That's why I'm delighted to see some people here I haven't seen for 40 years who I knew in university and others because it's wonderful when you know your 60s, one of the best things about growing older is you see the hand of God over a generation. And uh, that's one of the best things about growing older is you see what God has done through li people's lives over 30, 40 years. So across the world, student ministry under God has contributed 
to the strengthening of the church. Deacons, Sunday school teachers, elders, pastors, volunteers, co-workers in the churches in many countries around the world. But also in terms of mission, many of the significant mission leaders around the world first heard the call to engage in cross-cultural mission as students. Typically, the Irish student movement, like the British and others, they all in their constitutions have a threefold goal, evangelism, discipleship, cross-cultural mission. That's sometimes the Cinderella of the three, but it's there, and that's where many significant leaders all across the world have first, first heard the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Third reason student ministry is important is because of the impact on culture and society, and someone prayed along these lines earlier. Uh, it's interesting to see the impact of postgraduates who are scientists, teachers, uh, engineers, professionals, uh, medics, and so many others uh, living out their Christian testimony uh, in society as a whole. Let me give you one example from Northern Ireland to see the impact just of one postgraduate who was born in Northern Ireland, Sir Fred Catherwood. His father-in-law, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was the first chairman of IFES. It's the only trans-church movement he ever fully engaged in, so rooted in his local church. But for the first 16 years of IFES's history, he was the chairman of the board, the international board. He told me he shaped the doctrinal basis of the movement, which you have in Ireland, we have in the UK, and uh, also uh, we have globally. And he was very proud of that. Actually, Fred told me, as his son-in-law, he said, I think my father-in-law's impact was deeper in IFES than it was in all his preaching ministry. Westminster Chapel. That was his own son-in-law's perspective. Anyway, Fred was the treasurer of IFES as well. Later on, his wife, Elizabeth Catherwood, was the vice chair, uh, the vice president of IFES. They all served right into their 70, 60s and 70s in one way or another as volunteers in the movement. I spoke at Fred's funeral 18 months ago and then at his Thanksgiving service in Cambridge in January last year. It was attended by many people from the European Parliament because he was vice president of the European Parliament, 91 to 93. He told me he led a Bible study group in Strasbourg. There were only about seven in it. Uh, many more in the British Parliament who are evangelical Christians. But I'd heard a story about Fred and I asked the person I was sitting next to who was an MEP in his funeral if he was accurate. And the guy wasn't a Christian. I said, I've heard this about Fred, is it true? I said, I've been to Russia three times in the last 10 years. I went to speak at a conference where there were 700 pastors from across the country. And I was shocked when they said how much freedom they have there. How the church has grown four or five times since 1990, when Boris Yeltsin was the uh, president of the new Russian state. And uh, they told me how much freedom they had for propagating the gospel for 20 years. It's a bit more restricted now. But in the early 90s, the Russian Orthodox Church, when Russia opened up, tried to bring in a, persuade the government to bring in a law to restrict the freedom of worship of all evangelicals, particularly Baptists and Pentecostals. The system in Russia is the Duma, or the parliament passes it, then the president signs it into the statute book. Twice, apparently, the parliament, under the influence of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, whose leader was a former member of the KJB, uh, the Patriarch, they brought in a new law to restrict the freedom of worship of basically evangelicals, you and I, and it was passed by the Duma, brought to Yeltsin on two occasions. Fred Catherwood was the European vice president of the European community at the time with responsibility for connecting with Russia, so he went in to see Yeltsin on both occasions, 
uh, asked to see him privately and said, Sir, I, realize, I hear that you're introducing this law. You're about to sign it into the statute book. And I'm going to ask you not to do it for two reasons. One is these Christians are faithful Russian uh, patriots. They love their country. Secondly, if you do this, you'll damage your relationship with the rest of Europe. So I suggest you scrap the law. On both occasions, Yeltsin scrapped the law. And the Russian pastors told me, we have freedom of religion because of one man from Northern Ireland. But his thinking was shaped here in Northern Ireland as he was growing up and the believing parents as he listened to the ministry of his father-in-law in London, and he, as he was engaged in the CU in Cambridge and in IFS, subsequently together with his wife. One person, a Daniel figure, perhaps the most outstanding and influential evangelical politician in Europe, I think, over the last 50 years, but there's no book written about those stories. But it highlights the third reason why student ministry is strategic, the potential for the graduates of the ministry who is thinking has been shaped to have an impact on the wider culture. Now, pray for uh, Monty uh, and Gwen, because I think it's wonderful that they're working as a team, because Fred and Elizabeth, again, a Catholic, I was general secretary in the early 1990s when the whole of Eastern Europe opened up, and I asked them to go. He, he was the treasurer at the time. She was the vice, vice president. Would they go to Ukraine and have a look at the situation there where the work was expanding and see if there's anything we could do. Uh, and uh, when they came back, I asked Elizabeth, who was 65, 70 years of age then, any advice? She said, Lindsay, you need to appoint older couples. A lot of young staff in these countries, a lot of young women in their 20s, they're not gonna talk to the older guys. They need a woman to talk with. They need older single women, they need older married women, just to reassure them that some of the challenges they're facing in Christian ministry, others have faced before. And they'll work through this challenge, and there'll be other challenges later on. Please find in IFES older couples. That's why we had Castles and Hazel uh, to help with pastoral ministry. And the twofold ministry that uh, Monty and Gwen will have will not just be, it's not so much doing the pioneering themselves, it's talent spotting pioneers and facilitating and supporting and working alongside them. Uh, the best talent spot I ever saw was my predecessor, Chua Weehan, who, who appointed people in their 20s who served for 30, 40 years. We shaped the direction of the movement for a long time. I've never seen anybody else do that, mostly just think short term. He was appointing people who, uh, who experienced longevity in Christian ministry, and IFS is shaped by his legacy, even though many people don't know about him today. Uh, but he's the best talent spotter I ever saw. Having confidence, he appointed me as 27 as a European secretary, really throwing the dice in many ways in choosing a young person. And he did that in other continents too. So one of, their role, one of the roles will be to talent spot nationals and others to help in the pioneering process. The other is to provide pastoral support, and that's why both of them are necessary. And that's why when Castles and Hazel travel and when, when you travel, the wives in married couples will love it to see a wife present with her husband, somebody they can talk to and open up to, because they're longing for the support of aunties, uncles, mother, father figures who can just say, it's okay. You know, I'm 30 years older than you, or 20 years older, old enough to be your mother, your auntie. Now, let me tell you how God has worked in my life over the decades. And so the second dimension of their ministry will be not just facilitating the pioneering, but also caring for some of these younger folks. 
And that's why IFS needs to have older couples as well as younger pioneers who can work many more hours. Now, that's background. Let me get to the passage. As you're going, uh, I don't want to delay you too long, but this particular passage I thought was relevant because many people, when they look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, think it was victory, victory, victory all the time. He just went on his three missionary journeys, and lo and behold, the church came into existence in all these cultures. What we glean from 2 Timothy chapter 1 is that in the province of Asia, which is essentially a significant part of modern-day Turkey, one of the eight countries that they have particular responsibility for, that basically Paul had failed in uh, human terms. And he says himself in chapter 1, verse 15, now this is one of the last letters he wrote to Timothy, the end of his life, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. And by implication, they've deserted the gospel. In other words, I haven't left anything behind me. Nothing much to speak of in, church, in terms of churches, small groups, and so on. He was one, it was one of those missionary journeys which did not seem to bring long-term fruit. And what can you do when, the, when you're at the end of your life and you're not able to revisit those people? You can only do two things. You can pray for God to bring about growth, and you can maybe appoint or challenge a successor. What he does is he challenges Timothy, who is the opposite of Paul. I mean, what we know of him in temperament is that he was young, probably 20 years younger than Monty is now. He'd get into an Eastern European youth group, uh, about 35 years of age. Uh, he was timid. He'd lost a father. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I've often seen when children lose fathers that it leads to a degree of timidity. And he was prone to frequent illness, hardly the profile of a pioneer. But Paul asks him to go anyway. And because he knows Timothy's sensitivities, he gives him five foundational exhortations. And so these foundations I would call the five characteristics of the people that God uses in the kind of ministry you're going to be engaged in, in any cross-cultural ministry, and actually applies to all of us living in Northern Ireland or anywhere else, wherever we're serving, the five marks or characteristics or the helps, or the focus of the kind of people God uses. So here they are. The first is that Paul starts off with it because he's foundational in his exhortation. Be strong in the grace of God, which is in Christ Jesus, in chapter 2, verse 1. The grace of God is the fountain from which the joy of the Lord comes. It's the fountain, or the source of joy, it's the fountain from which all Christian delight and service and a sense of wonder flows. It's unique to the gospel. You look in vain for the word grace in the Quran. It's not found in any other world religions. The word is almost an invention of the Bible. I did a word study the other week. I stopped counting after I'd counted the word grace in the New Testament 135 times. I was about two-thirds of the way through. I gave up. I found it more than 30 times in the Old Testament. So it's not just an invention of the New Testament, it's there in the Old Testament, and of course it means God's sheer undeserved mercy towards us. Muslims have 99 names for God, but four things they never say about God are A, he's a father, B, he's personal, C, he's loving, thirdly, they never say he's the God of all grace. That's what Peter said. That's unique to the biblical revelation of God. It's an understanding and experience of the grace of God that gives us a sense of wonder and a softness of spirit also. 
You can almost smell it as soon as you see someone who's tasted and rejoicing in the grace of God. From an understanding and experience of God's grace comes this sense of wonder. Remember again, Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, told me, you know what's missing in most preaching, Lindsay? It's the evocation of the wonder of the gospel. He said, it's not enough to teach that the gospel is true or that it's powerful. You've got to try and convey its wonder. And when somebody conveys the wonder of the gospel, I tell you what doesn't happen at the door when people are leaving. People never say, nice word, pastor. They're totally, as French say, bouleversed. They're knocked out by this sense of the wonder, the depth, the profundity, the greatness, the glory, the awesomeness of the grace of God in two senses. It's by God's grace that we are saved and delivered. And secondly, it's by God's grace that we are helped to face challenges in life. Firstly, by God's grace that we are delivered and saved. Jacques Ellul, the famous French sociologist, I remember hearing him speak when I was a student in France saying, one of the distinctive features of the Western world, particularly Europe, is the loss of the sense of wonder. He said, the three great architects of Western uh, cynicism are Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, because they all discouraged a positive faith in anything, and therefore they're the fathers of Western European cynicism. And you see that loss of wonder even with teenagers today. Sometimes, unfortunately, you see it in congregations where people have attended church for decades and they've lost it. Maybe their senses are dulled because they've heard it many times. But in terms of having a sense of the joy of the Lord being our strength, that's where it comes from. That sense of wonder which evokes joy comes from understanding the grace of God. I had an experience of this once when I was in Argentina speaking at a student conference. I was speaking about the grace of God. And afterwards, I went out. It was an anti-cyclonic night, uh, stars. And I was looking out at the stars in the southern hemisphere. And then a man came and tapped me on the shoulder. He was a Dutch missionary who had served in Irian Jaya as a pioneer missionary. Tapped me on the shoulder. He was eight years of age. He said, thank you for speaking about the grace of God tonight. He said, I preached about it many times myself, of course. But he said, whenever I hear about the grace of God, I'm deeply moved. I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, during the Second World War, I was a member of the Hitler Youth. I killed a lot of people. I did terrible things. Then I met the Lord. I was converted. Then I met my wife, the second great encounter in my life. We got married. God called us into ministry. Then he called us to be cross-cultural missionaries. Then to pioneer situation, Irian Jaya in the South Pacific. He said he was so dangerous working with headhunters, the Dutch Air Force winched us down from a helicopter and refused to land. We worked there, he said, for 40 years. And he said, we saw revival. He said, one Sunday, I baptized 3,000 people. So he said, do you see now why I think the gospel and the grace of God is so wonderful? Not only did he save me despite my past, not only did he call me into ministry, but the depth of his grace is so great, he called me and trusted me with a pioneering ministry and used me in the midst of revival. He said, that's why I think God's grace is so great. For many of us, what we are challenged to do is turn aside and ask, oh Lord, please fill my mind and senses afresh with the wonder of the grace of God. I say nothing else tonight. If the Holy Spirit that lodges that in our conscience and our hearts, it's enough. But that's why Paul starts with a statement, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, because it is totally foundational. And students will smell it if they see you have that sense of the wonder of the gospel, and they'll be irresistibly attracted to it. Again, one of the countries you probably visit is Bosnia. I have a friend there who's a pastor 
in a Pentecostal church. He's also an artist. His paintings are all around the church. I said, Sasha, how did you become a Christian? He said, it happened in the war in 1994, the Civil War. He said, I was the top sharpshooter in the country. I killed a lot of people. I could hear them dying from several hundred meters. And he said, I wasn't a Christian. Uh, But he said, my conscience was disturbed. I'd wake up at night screaming and sweating. I ran away from the army across the border. And then he said, I came across this woman. And she saw I was disturbed. She asked why I was disturbed. I told her what I'd done. I couldn't live with my conscience. He said she was a believer. She shared the gospel with me. I was filled with a sense of wonder. And then he said this beautiful phrase. He said, when I understood the depths of the grace of God, my guilt washed away like the snow in the springtime. So he said, then I returned to my country. And he said, now I'm a pastor. I said, oh, what happened to that woman? He said, oh, I married her. She's my wife. Anyway, uh, that's the grace of God. Uh, through which God saves us. But it's by the grace of God, he keeps us too. And you know, there's that striking phrase in Isaiah where Isaiah says, as the mouthpiece of God, the bruised reed I will not break, the smoking flax I will not quench. When my son was starting his student work, he said, any tips, dad? I said, just one, son. You're going to need to develop a bottomless capacity to handle disappointment. It'll come your way. You'll be hurt. When I became General Secretary of IFS in 1991, I was a 37-year-old, I remember an Asian leader saying to me, Lindsay, you can't lead people internationally unless you've been hurt or wounded. I didn't like it. I thought he was having a go at Western people as if we can't experience being bruised. But he knew that my wife and I had lost our only daughter several years before. And subsequently, I experienced I was a very self-confident, even-tempered person, not prone to depression, unlike the vast majority of Welshmen, who on a good day are depressed twice a day. God gave me an even temperament, but I found it difficult to understand the depths that some people could plumb to. And it was in losing a child that God turned something which was a painful experience to the advantage of being able to minister to others. So I've lost count of the number of people who've come to me who've lost children, even sometimes total pagans, and said, we heard you lost a child years ago. We've lost one. Tell us, does the pain ever go away? And often when people realize that we've been wounded by something, whether it's just because of the fall, and you have experienced wounding, you can't not have if you're in your 50s. It happens in our culture, either because of the fall or sometimes because of the opposition of family members or friends, or sometimes you can even be hurt by other believers, which is the most painful thing of all. When you sometimes see leaders who disappoint you or hurt you. That's why Marjorie Foyle wrote a book once about many missionaries called Honorably Wounded. Now, Castles understands that. That's why his ministry was profoundly pastoral because we meet many workers who are wounded. How do you deal with wounding? The only answer is to plumb the depths of the grace grace of God, understand that God understands himself what it means to be wounded, and stoops down, reaches out to us, and offers us grace, no matter how profound the difficulty is. It's not a sin to plumb the depths if you're wounded. It's a sin to stay there and not draw on the grace of God. And one of your rules... Because you've been wounded yourselves, we won't go into ways in which you may have been wounded, but because you've been wounded, the grace of God doesn't eradicate pain. It ameliorates its depth and its power, or it reduces its power. Let me give you an example. The greatest brain I ever met 
was a Cambridge professor, Norman Anderson, Sir Norman Anderson, was professor of uh, law in Cambridge and uh, an Arabist. He spoke Arabic. And uh, I was speaking at Word Alive, a student conference in the early 1990s. I think I was about 38 or 39 then. And he gave his testimony. I was interviewed for the last time in public just before I spoke. And sometimes you remember testimonies, you know, for decades. This is one I'll never forget. He was 85 years of age. Last time he spoke in public. And this young Anglican vicar, they must have agreed the questions beforehand, turned them and said in front of 2,000 students, Professor Anderson, you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for 70 years. But I know you've had three children and they've all died before you. One committed suicide, the other two had hereditary diseases. One of them was a brilliant guy in Oxford, they thought become a prime minister, died in his 20s. And your wife has senile dementia. You don't have any children to leave anything to, and your wife can no longer recognize you. You're now 85 years of age. Do you ever ask the question, why me? I thought, oh, he's gone too far. But then quick as a flash, Norman Anderson came back and said, I never asked the question, why me? I do ask the question, why not me? Because I'm living in a fallen world. When a plane goes down, there are believers in it and unbelievers. Believers have cancer just like unbelievers. Believers lose children or family members or experience pain or grieving just like unbelievers do. The difference between myself and the unbeliever is I draw on the grace of God, which is given me in three ways. The The comforting presence of the Holy Spirit the promises of the scripture, and the community of God's people. These are three graces that unbelievers cannot and do not draw on. And those graces do not eradicate my sense of pain or loss, but they reduce its potency till I see the fulfillment of my hope and reunion with my children and wife will recognize me in heaven. It's a brilliant answer. So the grace of God is given to us not just for salvation, but to help those who are bruised. If you are bruised tonight, draw on it. There's no time for the stiff upper lip. Draw on God's grace, and your ministry will involve ministering to the bruised. Castles could probably tell you dozens of stories. That. I always remember Chua Weehan coming back from one visit uh, in Asia from two weeks, and I said to him, do you have a good visit? He said, yes, great. I said, what were the highlights? He said, oh, I, I, I helped six people uh, to decide not to resign because they're all thinking of giving up. And you've experienced that, Castles, I know, and you will experience that. You'll come across leaders who feel like giving up because they're weighed down by burdens and even uh, bruising by other believers who don't understand their ministry. Maybe you want short-term results. Maybe see you're not working close enough with the church or whatever it is. And your ministry, therefore, will be the role of a healing ministry to restore and encourage Barnabas-like the believers who are thinking of giving up. Well, I could stop there, but let me hurry on and give you the other four quickly, okay? The second thing Paul says in verse 2 is, the things you've heard from me from faithful men pass on to others. He's talking about investing in others. Now, the great thing for someone like Cassius and myself, and he's even older than I am, is that as you look back over 40 years in student ministry, we started at the same time. The great privilege is you can see what God has done with people over four decades. And you have sometimes people coming up to you and saying, remember you did this Bible talk on the grace of God or whatever it is. Remember you gave me a word of encouragement and it helped to shape my life. It happened to me yesterday in the Welsh Leadership Forum. A young, uh, not a young woman, she's 60 now, she came up to me, she said, remember Lindsay, you spoke in our youth group? 
I was only four years older than her, 45 years ago, and you said you used to pray for your parents to become believers based on the verse in Acts 16, believe and you shall be saved and your household. You're praying from the end of the promise. You were praying for your household to become believers. I was the first. My parents became believers over 20 years later. And she said, I prayed that prayer for my father, who was a real out-and-out pagan for many years. And she said, I was a cancer specialist. I led him to the Lord in the hospital in the last day of his life. She said, I wanted to thank you today. It's 40 years ago. She never told me. And Castles, you've had experiences like that where people come and say, you invested in me, and this is your role. You won't see all the fruit in the short term. Many people are obsessed by short-termism, even in the church. But a lot of our work is sowing and sowing and sowing and planting and influencing and shaping and investing, and you'll be privileged to see some of it. But it's why I believe many people should stay in some ministries for 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know any strong student movement in the world where there's not somebody who was given at least 15 years as a general secretary or a board chairman. You can't build something in three years. It just doesn't happen. To build a deep work, you have to invest over a long time. And the interesting thing about Paul is that in the first chapter, he talks about rooting people in Christ and defending the gospel. He's talking about investing uh, substance and doctrine and truth uh, in people. And uh, he says, guard what I've entrusted. Uh, uh, he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him today. Somebody's written a, a book on to Timothy called Guard the Gospel as a result. And so one of the roles of the investor is to invest biblical truth into the lives of others. The other thing we notice about Paul when he writes to Timothy in his first letter, though, is he says, you know how I gave you myself. Now, the two things the investor in others have to do are give the gospel and biblical truth because that roots us and gives us strength, backbones rather than wishbones, to quote Michael Griffiths, but also to give ourselves. Let me tell you the two mistakes most counselors make. They either, particularly men, who have a, a more doctrinaire type, many of whom I know in Wales, they want to drop doctrines on people like an atomic bomb. I want to make sure people are just right. So if you're just off-center, no, I've got to correct you. They want to make sure that the truth is accurately conveyed. That's good in itself. It's not enough, though. People can smell if you're giving yourself as well. The danger for some counselors is that if they give themselves, they're up till midnight, one in the morning, two in the morning, they have a conversation for six hours, but they've given of themselves and they haven't given doctrine which shapes and frames people. Paul is beautifully balanced in that he guards the gospel and passes on the deposit of truth to Timothy and he gives himself. Those are the best counselors, the best investors. I look back in my own life, I was the first believer in my family. I remember doing an interview with the BBC some years ago, just before that 2010 Congress, and the interviewer said, um, you've worked with a lot of great Christian leaders, John Stott, Billy Graham, Martin Lloyd-Jones, George Verwer, these kind of people, who influenced you most? I said, none of those guys. He was a woman. I lived with my grandmother on my own for 12 years, from the age of seven to 19. She never went to college, left school at 13, she absolutely loved me, and she shaped me. Black and white framework. This is the framework, Lindsay. Every day she told me she loved me, but step outside that framework, I'll jump on you like a ton of bricks, because I love you. 
Very straightforward. And my wife said to me the other day, I'm trying to work out why you've got such, such confidence. So at ease with yourself. But she said, I suppose, if I was told every day in my life by my grandmother that she, she loved me, I'd feel pretty good about myself as well. But it wasn't just loving, it was a framework. And that's what Paul is doing here with Timothy. He gives him a biblical framework, and he gives of himself to him. Ask yourself who invested in you. Turn aside, thank God for them. Then ask, in whom am I investing? Many Christians are just like sponges, particularly in the Celtic nations. We love teaching. We drink it all in. But we keep it to ourselves. Churches grow when we, who are not necessarily the senior pastor, invest in others and shape them. Just think of the impact here. Paul's talking about four generations of influence and exhorting Timothy to invest in others too. I once asked a senior general secretary in Canada what were the marks of the best student workers. He used the acronym LISP. L-I-S-P. He said, the best workers, and it's true of pastoral workers too, lay down their lives for the gospel. Then he said, they invest in others. Thirdly, S, they think strategically and work single-mindedly. Fourthly, P, they persevere. The third thing Paul says in verses 3 and 4 is to endure hardness like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I don't need to talk to you about sacrifice. You've already lived that out for the last 30 years and more. So I don't want to labor that point. The only thing I want to say here is to put Paul's exhortation to be prepared for hardness, whatever it is. If you were traveling to another culture, it might be the loss of uh, cultural uh, acceptance for the work that you do, maybe leaving family members behind or something like that. That's not happening to you. But there may be other elements of sacrifice in your life. Bonhoeffer used to call it the badge of Christian discipleship. What I would say is that it's very important to understand Paul's order here. Grace first, sacrifice second. I'm tired of going to many youth meetings where I hear preachers call young people to sacrificial living and not explain why. In the New Testament, the exhortation to live sacrificial lives is because they've tasted God's grace, grace first, sacrifice second, and we're responding to having received and building our lives on the greatest message in the history of the world. That's why we sacrifice. So when we've tasted God's grace, we don't ask, what must I do? We ask, what can I do? Uh, because this is such a great message. I'm prepared to sacrifice if that's what God calls me for, calls me to. The other rider in this context is in these two verses, as in much of the New Testament, Paul challenges the believers to be prepared for suffering to be prepared for sacrifice, and there may be some of that to come your way still. But on the other hand, I was just reading in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he also says that God, in, uh, let me just read that verse, verse 17, put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's not just talking about spiritual blessings there, but about God as a Father who gives us the gift of creation, gives us the gift of music, the gift of the visual, the gift of relationships, the gift of our Irish culture or Welsh culture, the gift of sport. All these things are good gifts from God's hand as a father. How do we hold in creative tension the call to sacrifice and the enjoyment of all God's gifts? Most Christians should be the most attractive people in the society because they're interested in everything. Science, history, 
art, music, all these things. Why? Because they're gifts from God, richly and freely to be enjoyed. Never heard a sermon on that. But it's there in the New Testament. Not as much emphasis as sacrifice. But the two are held in creative tension. How do you do it? Well, the greatest answer I've heard is uh, Amy Carmichael of Donovan, who said, I thank God for all his gifts which are given to me richly and freely to, me, to be enjoyed. My family, food from back home, literature, music, all these things. But she said, I hold them in the palm of an open hand, so if God asks me to give up some of them for the cause of the gospel, they don't have to be prized out. They're released freely. I think that's a beautiful balance. And so your life is to be rich with the gifts that God has given. Unless they're obviously immoral, they're to be enjoyed. But if for the, core, the greater cause of the advance of the gospel, they, we are called to give some of them up, we freely give them. And we're prepared to endure hardship if he calls us to that. I remember visiting uh, Eastern Europe, Romania, bringing this text back from a, a pastor who wanted to be translated into English in the smuggled it out in the, in, in the sole of my shoe. I didn't realize that if I'd been caught, I'd probably be imprisoned. Then I saw Lloyd-Jones afterwards, and he said... Uh, Lindsay, you know, there are some people in that country, some pastors, they're trying to get put in prison. He said, we should be prepared for sacrifice and persecution, but don't go looking for it. Take it if God allows it to come your way. The fourth thing is that Paul says that we should run according to the rules like the athlete. And here I think he's simply getting at the theme of single-mindedness and integrity, running according to the rules. There's a big furore this weekend because the Russian Athletic Federation has been welcomed back into the International Amateur, the Athletics Association when many people think there's still corruption and drugs floating around. People want to see integrity. And in student ministry, they really want to see those of us who are older living lives of integrity. You know, it can take a lifetime to build it up and you can lose it, lose it with some dumb decisions. That's why it's good to travel as a couple for one thing but also to seek to live a life worthy of the Lord. One of the folks prayed, I think it was Tom earlier, about prayed for you that you would have a godly character. Students love that. They love it. I was speaking at a mission a few years ago with Michael Green when he was a mere 78-year-old in Cardiff, and uh, he should manifest the joy of the Lord and integrity in his ministry. And at the end of the week, I asked one of the student leaders, what he thought of the mission week, five days of evangelism. He said, oh, it's been a great week. I said, what did you enjoy most? Michael Green was walking distance. He said, see that man over there? If I live to be 80, I want to be like that. Listen, those of you who are even older than me, I'm 64 now, in your 70s and 80s, don't think there's no role for you anymore, or even that people are not watching. Young people love it when they see people of their grandparents' age who manifest the joy of the Lord and retain their integrity. They absolutely love it. So what shaped me? I lived with a woman who was in her 60s and 70s on my own for 14 years, and that shaped me more than anybody else I've lived or worked with. And they're watching you to see if you will manifest the joy of the Lord, the grace of God, integrity, they want to see that it works. Yesterday, in the Welsh Leadership Forum, Ajit Fernando was speaking from Sri Lanka, and he talked about a pioneer missionary who went to an island in the, in the South Pacific, and he worked there for 30 years, and not one conversion. And then after he died, 
Another missionary came, and revival broke out. And he couldn't understand why this other guy had worked for 30 years. Nothing happened, and now all these people converted. So he asked them, why are so many of you turning to the Lord now? I haven't done anything. They said, well, the missionary who came before you told us that somebody who put their trust in Christ would not be afraid of dying. So we waited till he died to see if it was true. And when we saw it was true, then we turned to the Lord. They were watching him all the time. And they're watching us, both unbelievers, overt pagans, and young believers, to see, is it true? Are they living it out? Are their lives as consistent? Are they running the race according to the framework, the rules that God gives? And then lastly, Paul says in verse 6, he encourages Timothy to persevere like the farmer. Now, I don't know about Northern Ireland, but my father-in-law was a farmer, and we don't have any fast-moving farmers in Wales. They're all really slow. And uh, it's unusual to see a farmer who's very fast unless he's working in a mechanized context. My father-in-law just used to love to till the soil and do it slowly. Samuel Escobar said the only thing 20th century man discovered was speed. We, everything in our, uh, we, we have to have everything quick, instant coffee, instant sexual satisfaction, instant celebrity, instant everything. But it's the antithesis of the biblical notion of discipleship. And it's certainly the case in Christian ministry, and that's why Paul is saying to Timothy, persevere like the farmer who will see the reward from his work in due course. You won't see all the fruit from your ministry, okay? I can tell you that now. You'll see the tip of the iceberg. You'll see enough to encourage you. You're working in really tough countries that require 30, 40 years of impact. I remember traveling as European secretary in the 1980s in Europe. There was nothing in Eastern Europe except for one Bible study in one, one city in what was Yugoslavia, uh, Zagreb, and some undercover Bible studies in East Germany. Nothing else anywhere. Now, there are groups across the whole continent. So you, you can experience, you can think of my joy as I look back 40 years and see what God has done through a succession of faithful laborers over 40 years. I was one of them, but there are many others who came afterwards, castles included, and Hazel. And it's your privilege to be part of that ongoing witness, building and sowing and seeing the fruit. People give up too easily after three or four years. And our challenge is to persevere in living a life worthy of Christ all our days and trusting him to bring the fruit in due course. I need to finish, so let me give you two quick illustrations of that. One of the countries you'll visit, as you know, is Spain. I went there in 1984 when the student work was very small at the point of collapse. I think there were 30 people in the con national conference, 30 people. And at the end of the conference, a group of students in a, went off in a car. I think they were going to buy a present for me. And they were involved in a car accident, and the two key leaders were killed. Third one broke his arm and his leg. It was his brother who was killed. He came to live with us for six months in Cardiff. It was devastating. News came back to the camp. I remember going out for a walk with the only part-time student worker, Spanish student worker in the country. There were three older British women there as well, helping. And he was 26. And I said, Francisco, this could either destroy or make the movement. In order for it to function, somebody's got to give 30 years. It's either you or Rodolfo, who's just lost his brother. Make your choice. He said, I'll do it. 
just retired after 34 years in that role. There are groups all over the country. I'm going to the 50th anniversary where there'll be 500 people in the first week of December, with many pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries. I've been recently to a missionary conference in Spain with 600 young people. I asked a missionary there who's been there for 40 years. The students were disappointed. It was only 600. I said, when you look at this, what do you think? He said, Lindsay, you have to understand, I came here 40 years ago when this was inconceivable. Now Spaniards going out in mission. He said, it's the fruit of a lifetime of ministry. He said, they're depressed because there's not so many of them. I'm rejoicing because there's so much. But he said, that's the benefit of being 64. See what God's done over 40 years. You'll see some of that. A lot of it you won't see. And for those who are members here of the church, you look back 15, 20 years ago when maybe this church was struggling a bit. See the fruit of the ministry over the last 15 years. By the grace of God, it may continue to grow and thrive and impact elsewhere and plant churches and so on. That's the benefit of having this historical perspective, of seeing God at work. If we persevere, do not give up and do not lose heart because if we continue, God promises he will bring forth fruit. remember reading a a missionary with a London missionary going to Mongolia in 1865 for 25 years. And just before he died, he wrote a prayer letter in which he said, I'm retiring. I haven't seen one convert. Not one. He probably wouldn't be supported by many churches today because we want to see quick fruit. And he returned to him and he said, I, I trust that as a result of mine and other people's prayers that there will, in God's timing, be a church in Mongolia. hundred years later, Missionaries started to go into Mongolia about 1990. At the time, there were six known Mongolian believers in the country. Today, there are at least 150 churches. There are at least 25,000 believers. Let me tell you, the country which sends out per head of population more missionaries than any other country in the world, Mongolia, 100 years after he sowed the seed and prayed those prayers. And the last illustration comes from North Africa. Brethren, missionary I knew. I met him when he was 85, when I was on the Logos ship for a year after university, going around Africa. His name was Charles Marsh. And even George Vua said to me, Lindsay, this guy, I, he, he frightens me. He's so zealous. And, uh, which is quite something if you know George Vua. Anyway, uh, he came and did some missionary tours around Wales. And he told me that his approach in Algeria was to go to the coffee shops and just talk with people and use visual illustrations and the text of Scripture to introduce people to Christ. He worked for 20 years, not one convert. Then in two years, 20, all killed by their family members. Then another 20, he left about 200 behind him. Recently, one of the leaders in OM was visiting. I asked him what's happening. He said, there are at least 80,000 believers in the country, Lindsay. Most converted since the year 2000, round about when Charles Marsh died. Do you know where the churches have sprung up? Near the coffee shops where he was doing the evangelism. Never saw it. Neither will you. Neither will I. Neither will you in Europe, but you'll see some of it. You're working in some of the toughest countries. That's why you need to do it for at least 10 years, like castles. And hang in there and just see yourself as part of the relay and that God uses a disparate range of temperaments and personalities and gifts, not one being despised, but working as a group in harmony, and he will build his church as we persevere. And if you think, feel like giving up, 
If you don't want to sacrifice, then you know the last phrase in verse 8, Paul's answer, don't want to persevere, don't want to sacrifice, don't want to pass it on, don't want to be single-minded, just three words. Remember Jesus Christ, who never gave up, went to the cross, set his face like a flint, persevered, was single-minded, prepared for sacrifice. He's our model. Let's follow him. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for the wonder of the gospel. Thank you for the wonder of the church, for all the people that you've given, and the wonderful range of talents and personalities and gifts, how the church of God enriches our personalities and our lives, deliver us from being overly critical of the church, help us to rejoice in the tapestry of your people, both here and across the world, and then help us to make our contribution. I pray, Lord, that you will raise up a body of supporters to get behind uh, Monty and Gwen and support them so that they have financial support. They've got prayers behind them so that they might sense that they're being ushered along by the prayers and the support of your people. And then they feed back to the church so the church is blessed to cause the, the, the gospel to take deep root and grow in these eight countries and more in which they will be ministering building on the shoulders and the work of others, and then leaving behind them a growing student ministry and a growing church as a testimony in each of those cultures, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One last thing I would say there. What my church did with me was when I was traveling, they always asked me to give a report back on a country the Sunday after. Because that way, you're not just supporting people, but as a church, you are very privileged you've got people who are going out who can report back to you. And remember the pastor in our church used to say, isn't it our privilege that we can send Lindsay and Anne out? When they come back, they can tell us of the works of God in these countries so that we receive news, just as the Church of Antioch did. So please give spots to them regularly to share news back so you can be encouraged at the hand of God at work.